The reputation of Romans is that it's a heady book, an intellectual book. It's a book for theologians. But like I said two weeks ago, the reality is that Romans is a letter written to a group of house churches in Rome. Real people in real places in real time. This book isn't about abstract theoretical theology. This book is about lived theology, a way of life. And that's why we're reading the book backwards. Because the way Romans is structured, it's the latter chapters of the book that begin to discuss the specific social and church context that Paul is addressing. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't get to the very last chapters because they lose steam. You get to that last chapter, 16, you see all those names, and you just press fast forward, right? Because it seems like these are just unimportant details. The important stuff has already been said, so we think. But as we've seen for the last two weeks, by starting in the end, in chapter 16, we learn a ton about those house churches in Rome to whom Paul is writing and the specific situation that Paul is addressing. For example, of the 27 names that Paul specifically lists in chapter 16, we learn that there are Latin names, Greek names, and Jewish names. And this demonstrates that the house churches of Rome were a culturally and ethnically diverse community. We also saw that 30% of the names were female. But of the 10 names that were specifically mentioned as leaders, 70% of those names were female. We also learned that the house churches of Rome were socioeconomically diverse. Some of the disciples in Rome were either currently slaves or had formerly been slaves, while others were wealthy, possibly even socialites. So Paul is writing to the church at Rome to urge them to seek God's peace in the midst of this diversity. He tells them plainly that his concern what his concern is in chapter 16. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the to teaching that you, have re, that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard of your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So Paul's concern here is that there's potential for God's enemies to find a foothold among the disciples in between their culturally and ethnically diverse practices and drive a wedge. We can see this from the very deliberate use of Paul's turn of phrase in verse 18. Those who cause divisions are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. That's a double meaning. It's referring not only to the different cultural food practices, but also the different desires and convictions of the factions in the churches of Rome. But Paul wants the churches to know that the Satan will not have the last word. In Christ, God has principally defeated the Satan and all the powers on the cross and in the resurrection. And Paul wants the disciples in Rome to know that God's spirit is at work among them producing peace. And it's not that false peace of the Pax Romana that is actually conquest 
and oppression in disguise, but the peace that is the formation of a new way of being human community together. New creation expressed in the household of God. So that's what we're going to explore for the next two weeks, starting today. Pastor Durr is going to preach on these passages again next week. But before I dive into discussing the text further, there's a very important piece of cultural and historical context that we won't find in these chapters this morning that we need to talk about. To illustrate this piece of cultural and historical context, let me tell you a, a, a brief story about when my home church no longer felt like home. So I came to faith in a Pentecostal congregation uh, in Urbana, Illinois, when I was close to 17 years old. And from the very moment of my baptism, that church embraced me and made me feel like I was part of a family. At, uh, I spent a few years at that church before I moved to New Orleans, and in that time, families welcomed me. They, they brought me home for dinner, they fed me, they, they gave me big hugs and loved me well. But around 10 years later, when I had moved away, I came back to visit friends and family, and I decided to worship at my home church. The church had now grown significantly, from a few hundred when I was there to over a thousand. And now they had four worship services on a Sunday morning. So I remember walking in and feeling like, like I didn't know anyone in the building. Like all the people I had known had moved on. And the way that they worshipped felt completely different than what I remembered. It didn't feel like that intimate gathering of family now. Now it felt more like a performance. And I remember feeling so disappointed and frustrated. I didn't feel like I could really even worship freely because I felt so alienated in my own home church. And something similar is happening here to the churches in Rome. There were Jewish disciples returning to the city who didn't recognize their home church. The Church of Rome was likely planted in the mid-40s AD by Jewish followers of Jesus within two decades of the resurrection. And since Paul refers to Andronicus and Junia as outstanding apostles, they may have been among those first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And they may have been some of the disciples that brought the gospel to Rome first. Or maybe church tradition is right, and Peter was the one that planted the church in Rome. Also, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Acts as coming from Italy. So maybe they brought the gospel first to Rome. But, but Priscilla and Aquila were, were mentioned in Acts, Acts 18, because they were returning from Rome because they had been expelled from Rome. The emperor Claudius had issued a decree uh, expelling all the Jews from Rome. And this is, this is confirmed by Roman historians like Suetonius. This likely happened in 49 AD. But Nero came to power in 54 AD, just five years later, and Jewish followers of Jesus began returning to Rome. And here's where the discomfort comes in. This is where the disappointment and the frustration comes in. When the Jewish believers return to Rome, they encounter a church that doesn't feel like their home church. It doesn't feel like the Jewish cultural church that they remember worshiping in. Now it has become much more Gentile in its cultural practices. And this is causing tension. This is the division that Paul is concerned about in chapter 16. And this is the situation that Paul is specifically addressing in chapters 14 and 15. And this is really important. Mark this down because this, this is critical. Over this entire series, 
This conflict is going to be the context for the entire letter of Romans. Many of us have been taught to read Romans as if it's a theology textbook. And it's not rooted in specific time and place. But by reading Romans backwards the way we're doing it, we can see how it's much more applicable to our everyday lives. It's much more applicable to our community as a church. We can see how every chapter of Romans has this conflict as its backdrop. And as I've been studying Romans this way, through this lens, I've been noticing this, and Romans has been making more sense to me, and it's been more easily uh, applicable in our everyday lives. I've been thinking about roots and the everyday ways that we interact with one another and how this really speaks to our context. The division of the church of Rome along cultural and ethnic lines was at the forefront of Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. But we haven't been able to see it oftentimes because we've been trained to read the the letter of Romans individualistically. In a way that it it talks about our, our sins being forgiven individually. And in a way that we can believe the gospel and go to heaven when we die. But Romans is about the gospel uniting a diverse community. Forming a Jesus community that is breathed by the Spirit. And it embodies God's subversive peace in the midst of a brutal empire. This is why chapters 14 and 15 is where Paul directly addresses this conflict and applies the gospel to it. In the, book, in the chapters of 14 and 15 of Romans, Paul addresses these two factions called the weak and the strong. And essentially he asks them this one question over and over again. This is kind of like the overarching question. To whom do you belong? This is the key question that's embedded in this entire passage. The so-called weak are mostly made up of Jewish disciples and some Gentile disciples who were observant of the Jewish Torah, the law of Moses. While the so-called strong are mostly made up of Gentiles with some Jewish Jewish disciples like Paul who aren't Torah observant and I really this this week I really loved reading a book called uh, When in Romans by Beverly Roberts Gaventa and she translates Paul's nicknames for these two factions in a way that I just I, I couldn't stop laughing she calls them the lettuce eaters versus the garbage bellies and this is like like You know, like kid taunts, right? On the schoolyard. I love that. So let's talk about these two factions. The lettuce eaters are mostly those who are circumcised. And they keep the Sabbath. While the garbage bellies are mostly uncircumcised and consider every day alike. That's what it says in 14 verse 5. The garbage bellies are called that because they eat some questionable types of meat. Meat that may have been sacrificed to Roman gods or idols. But the lettuce eaters abstain from all such meat because they don't want to be defiled. And the lettuce eaters are mostly those who boast of their election by God. We are the chosen people of God. But the garbage bellies are those who mostly boast of their Roman social status. So the lettuce eaters judge the garbage bellies and the garbage bellies despise the lettuce eaters. But we should not get the wrong idea here. We should not 
think that this conflict is mostly over food. Right? This isn't vegetarians versus carnivores. That would be a very silly, petty kind of uh, dispute. What's really going on here is a conflict over identity. These two factions are deriving their identities from places that aren't Jesus. Now, I know that that's only something that happened in the first century, right? That we stopped doing that a long time ago. I know that 21st century American Christians are completely overcome the temptation to derive our identities from places other than Jesus, right? Why are you laughing? That's, that's, not, that's not a joke. I'm sure there aren't any cultural or ethnic or racial or political identities in America that tempt us to divide amongst each other, right? We don't do that anymore. That's silly. We modern Christians don't boast in our identities that we derive from someplace other than Jesus. We don't despise others because of their identities. We don't judge others because of their identities, right? This is why I've been saying over and over again that reading Romans this way is so applicable to our situation today. It's because every day we are tempted to derive our sense of self-worth and social standing from identities other than being in Christ, right? Every day we are tempted to boast, boast of those identities, to judge others because of their identities, and to despise others because of their identities. I know that that's a temptation for me. But Paul is going to call all of us out. And he's going to call us to fix our eyes once again on Jesus. He's going to call us to remember who our true Lord is. So here's what he says. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now when Paul says this, he's using a household metaphor. The Lord of the household is the one to whom servants are accountable. Paul is reminding the lettuce eaters and the garbage bellies that they aren't the Lord. And the household to which they belong is headed by the one who was crucified and rose from the dead. Paul uses the gospel to address this conflict. Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah. He's also the Son of God, the Lord of all ethnic groups, all peoples. This means that both Jewish disciples and Gentile disciples come under one roof in one household and become one new family in Christ. What this means too is that whose household we imagine ourselves belonging to makes all the difference in the world. Whose household we belong to defines our identity and our relationships. This became crystal clear for me a few weeks ago in my day job. In my day job, I do social work with teens who are on probation in North Minneapolis. And some of the teens that I work with are on probation for violent crimes. Not all of them, but some of them. And so we, we end up spending a lot of time talking about conflict and violence. And the other day we were talking about conflict and we were talking about getting into fights at school. And we were talking about our different family values. How do our families respond when we get into fights at school. And one of the young men that I work with said, if I get into a fight at school and I don't win that fight, I'm gonna get a beating when I get home. 
And that wasn't the first time I'd ever heard that before because a lot of my friends growing up had that same kind of family dynamic. But I've been in Christ now so long, longer than I've been in that world, that struck my ears as so foreign. It was like shocking. It was like, what? Because I thought about Oshida's response, right? I thought about my wife's own response and like our household values. And I think in our household, I know that Oshida would be more upset if she found out one of our kids won the fight by hurting another child than if they had just walked away, right? That's our household values. So household values determine our identities, who we are and how we live in the world. Who's, to whom you belong is going to inform how you live. What Paul is going to do in this metaphor of the household is he is going to prescribe a new ethic for the houses of the house churches of Rome. This new ethic is grounded in Jesus' self-giving love, his self-sacrificial cross-shaped love. The house churches of Rome are directly in the capital of the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen at the time. And that empire all around them had a way of life, a way of doing life that was built on gaining power over others. It was built on conquest. It was built on gaining glory and honor and wealth and status. So Paul interjects into the midst of that empire that Jesus, through Jesus, God has planted a different kind of community. A radically alternative home in the midst of empire. And here we are, in the 21st century, living in the midst of the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen now. More, way more powerful than Rome could have ever imagined. And all around us is a way of life every day that tempts us to become part of that empire. But right here in the midst of the American empire, God has planted communities like ours where we are living into a radically alternative identity, belonging to Christ's household, being members of one another. So this passage raises questions for the American church. It raises questions for us. And some of those questions, I just try to make a list. These aren't exhaustive, but some of those questions are this. Where are the fault lines that we see in the American church today? Where are those places where the enemy would, would want to drive a wedge? Where is their privilege and social power that needs to be divested of? Where is their powerlessness that needs to be bore by the socially powerful? Where is their boasting that needs to be repented of? Where is the economics of Caesar overruling the economics of Christ? Where is their tolerance that should be cross-shaped? This past week, I was reading uh, this book called Romans Disarmed. And I really love this quote by the, the husband and wife nerd team, Sylvia Kesmet and, and Brian Walsh. Here's what they wrote. Paul here is insisting that the household of Jesus is a radically different household from the household of Caesar. The two households operate out of conflicting home economics. The economy of the empire is one of exclusion, status, and opulence for the very few. But the home economics of the kingdom is one of inclusion, maturity, or mutuality, and equality. 
The household of Caesar imposes hegemonic order, while the household of Jesus embraces a diversity without judgment. This is what Paul was referring to when he said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What the gospel produces in community isn't tolerance, where we just agree to disagree. What the gospel produces in community is self-sacrificial love, costly love, where we love one another because we're family. This is where Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that one, with one mind and with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. So we who are powerful, Paul says, because he includes himself in that group. We who are powerful ought to bear the powerlessness of those with less power among us. I couldn't help but hear in this passage an echo of something else Paul said to the church in Corinth which is about the body of Christ. Paul said, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand, head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So you see here that Romans 14 and 15 is about the gospel applied to a community that is diverse. And Paul is injecting into that community this ethic of cross-shaped, others-centered, self-sacrificial love. Not tolerance and not partisanship. And here's, here's the thing that's amazing me this past couple weeks. Is that Paul stakes everything on this working. Paul is like a scientist. Paul is like Michael. Paul has a hypothesis and he's testing his hypothesis on the churches in Rome. And if the data doesn't return the results that he's looking for, then his hypothesis is wrong. He staked everything on this church loving each other. Jewish disciples were expelled from Rome and now they're returning and they're finding this Gentile dominated church and this is raising all kinds of uncomfortable questions for them. They're asking themselves, has God rejected God's own people? Has God's word failed? Is God not faithful to the covenant that God made with Israel? Have God's people stumbled so far as to fall? 
Paul believes that in Jesus, God is fulfilling the promises that God made to Abraham and to all the patriarchs and to Israel. Paul believes that those promises include the gathering in of the Gentiles and including them into one multi-ethnic family in Christ. So if the house churches of Rome split along ethnic and cultural lines, then Paul's entire theory comes crashing down, right? In fact, if the churches in Rome split along cultural and ethnic lines, Paul has to rethink his own identity because Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus and Christ called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So if the churches in Rome don't learn to have peace with one another, then Paul's got to get a new job description. He's out of a job. I really love what the nerd team, Kismet and Walsh, wrote again in their book, Romans Disarmed. They wrote, If God is not glorified in the daily life of the Jesus followers in Rome, if the gospel is not manifest in the alternative way in which this community shares table fellowship, then might it be true that the promises of, to the patriarchs remain unfulfilled and that God will not be glorified among the Gentiles. The harmony that Paul is seeking in the house churches of Rome is both pastoral and evangelistic in its significance. Neither the Gentiles nor anyone else will be attracted to come home to God in Jesus if that home is manifestly dysfunctional and perpetuates injustice in its midst. This is something that I think about a lot because the world around us is desperate to see true unity and true harmony. Deep in our bones, we long to see people really loving each other the way that Christ loves us. The world around us needs to see the church embody the love of Jesus in community in order for them to know that the gospel is true. A lot of Christians think in America that church is optional. But for Paul, it wasn't. Paul believed that the credibility of the gospel hangs on whether or not Jesus' disciples can embody the love of Jesus in community. And I think about this every time I walk up to somebody at the laundry place on a Saturday when we're doing laundry love and I offer them a bag with detergent pods and dryer sheets and quarters. I think about this. I think to myself, if I didn't know that Roots is a type of community that will welcome this person in front of me and treat them like family, I couldn't with confidence walk up to this person and talk to them about Roots. I couldn't do it. And I think about it every time I, I talk to someone at the laundry place because I think that in a world like ours that's so fractured and so polarized, I wouldn't have any confidence to share the gospel with them if we looked like the world. What kind of hope would that be? Hey, you live in a fractured and broken and polarized world. Come join our fractured and broken and polarized church. We would be no better. We would have, offer no hope. But instead, I get to invite them here. And I'm proud of this church. I'm proud of the community that we have. Over the last couple of years, I have seen us love each other well. 
I have seen divisions broken down. I have seen people go out of their way to sacrifice for one another, to love one another with Christ's love. But the reality is, if we don't, if we're not intentional about that, if we don't lean into that and ask ourselves the tough questions about power and privilege and class in our fellowship, then we will fail that test. We will prove Paul's hypothesis wrong. And Jesus didn't say, the world will know you are my disciples if you all eat the same foods, right? Jesus didn't say, the world will know you are my disciples if you all look the same. Jesus didn't say, the world will know you are my disciples if we all vote the same. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So sisters and brothers, the world needs a credible witness. And that's what the body of Christ is meant to be. So that's why I am excited that this week and next week we are kicking off our misfit meals. I'm, I'm excited for multiple reasons. One reason is that I just like getting together with you guys and talking, and especially about Romans and about the Bible, but also because I love hearing your stories and your different interactions and encounters with the scriptures and with tradition and with church. And I also, I'm also excited because we get to hang out in different kinds of communities. So the Lord's, the, the Lord's Supper, which is what the Lord's are calling their misfit meal, which is awesome, is going to be a mixed group. Everybody's welcome, multi-age. And our misfit meal, the Moore's Table, is going to be a men's and women's group. We're going to trade off on Tuesdays. And I'm excited because we get to dig down deep into these questions of power and privilege as men, as women, as families, all together as Roots Covenant Church. So this week, um, on Thursday the 19th, the Duran Alice's Misfit Meal is going to kick off. And then next week, uh, on Tuesday the 24th, that's when the men's group at our house is going to kick off. And the following week, October 1st, is when the women's group will kick off also at our house. I want to remind you that next week, Pastor Durr is going to pick up on chapters 14 and 15 again. And we're going to talk about this from another angle. I'm really excited about this backdrop for the entire series. Subversive peace, reading Romans backwards. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the crucified and risen Messiah. You are not only the Jewish Messiah, but you are the king of all the nations, all the ethnic groups. And we celebrate that in one body, you have brought together Jew and Gentile, every ethnic group under heaven. And God, I thank you that at Roots Covenant Church, we are embodying that. We are leaning into that. We are intentional about that. But God, I pray for your spirit's work among us, that you would open our eyes to see where the enemy would want to drive a wedge, where there is potential for class and cultural division, where there's potential for power and privilege to be a source of despising and judging. God, I pray that your spirit would breathe on this community and make us one in your son. God, I pray that Roots would be that credible witness, that we could be a light in the midst of a polarized world, in the midst of a world that is longing to see people love each other with the love of Christ. Help us to be that kind of witness for your sake, for the glory of God.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.